Today's scripture reading is from the book of John, John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. Again, John 16, verses 4 through 15. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, or he will take with his mind and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of God. Hi again. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bible if you haven't already. John chapter 16. Thank you, Robert, for reading those words to us. John chapter 16, and we are starting in verse 4. You may have noticed that verse 4 um, gets, gets cut right in the middle with this chapter separation. It's an unfortunate chapter division, not a very good one. But um, nevertheless, thank you for reading God's word, brother. It is better for us, Jesus says, to have the Spirit inside us than to have Jesus beside us. It's better to have the Spirit inside you than to have Jesus beside you. That's the main idea of today's message, and the question we want to answer is this, why? Why is it better to have the Spirit inside us than to have Jesus beside us? So let's just set the scene once again. This is the night that Christ would be arrested, He's with his 11 disciples. There used to be 12, but now there's only 11 because one of them has already left to betray him. Jesus has already shared so much troubling news with his disciples. He already told them that one of them would turn into a traitor. He told them that he'd soon leave to return to his father. He told them that while he was gone, they should expect to face harassment and hatred and suffering. 
This must have been overwhelming for them to hear all of this. They gave up everything to follow Jesus, to be with him. Jesus understands how they feel right now, having heard all of this news. And so he says in verse 5, chapter 16, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So because he's so intensely aware of their grief, he gives them these words to comfort them, to stabilize them and anchor them. Look at verse 6. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus always tells the truth. So when he says, I'm telling you the truth, it's only because he wants us to, to, to focus. He wants to emphasize all the more. This isn't just truth. This is vital truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There's so much here that the disciples couldn't grasp yet. They were too close to it all. We have the advantage of hindsight. Plus, we have the advantage of having the whole Bible. So, for instance, we know that what Jesus isn't saying here, when he says, I need to leave so the Spirit can come, he's not saying, well, you know, I and the Spirit, we can't be in the same place at the same time. I need to leave before he comes in. No, he's saying that he must go and die. He needs to go make atonement for the sins of his people. He needs to go substitute for his friends. Die for everyone who believe in him. And that needs to happen before the Spirit can come. The arrival of the Spirit of God is only possible after our guilt is taken care of. That's what he's saying. Only after your sin has been washed away and you've been reconciled to God can the Spirit then come to you. Only after sins had been addressed and put to death at the cross could the Spirit be sent into the world, into Christ's church. And then, then we can experience the fullness of His presence. Fullness of the Spirit. And so it's as if Jesus is really saying here, my departure is to your advantage because I'm going to die for you. They want a mistake, of course. Wouldn't you want a mistake? His physical presence, it, it meant comfort for them. It meant stability and security. We know now more than ever in July of 2020 how much it means to be with people that you love. We know what it feels like to miss that physical closeness the people who mean so much to you. Embodied presence matters. That's why it's so wonderful even to, to worship here with just a handful of you, 20 of us in this room. It matters. It means something. It's awesome because looking at each other and hearing each other's voices in person, embodied, 
It's so, so different than looking at each other through a screen, isn't it? And it's even more different from writing letters to one another, texting, not even being able to see one another. Embodied presence matters, and Jesus knows that. In fact, Jesus knows that one day, these disciples would experience his embodied physical presence again for eternity. But what he's promising them now, and he's promising us for now, is not his physical presence, but it's his spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit, who will not only be with us, but in us. And notice I said, he will be in us. At least I hope I said he, because the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not some impersonal power. He is God. The third person of the Trinity, God reveals to us, it's called the Holy Spirit. That's his name. He goes by other names too. God reveals himself in the Bible to us as a God who is three in one. Three persons in one being. And that is so confusing. It makes no sense to us. Because the only reality we know, human reality, tells us every being is one person. We've got 20 beings in here, human beings. That means we've got 20 persons in here. But that's not how it works for God. God is one being, three persons. In this passage, we see all three of those persons are mentioned. The Father is mentioned. Christ the Son is the one speaking. And the Holy Spirit is who he's speaking of. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called by different names. Like I said, he's called the Spirit of God. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He's called the Spirit of Adoption. That's one of my favorites, I think. He's called the Spirit of Christ. His presence in us is the presence of God. It's not just the power of God, it's the presence of God himself. There are, they, these three persons of the triune Godhead are so united, so closely in fellowship, as one being, that we can even say that the presence of the Spirit is the presence of the Father. The presence of the Spirit is the presence of Christ in us. And His presence is active. So, what would the Spirit do that, that, that makes His presence so advantageous? That Jesus could say, it's better for you, it's to your advantage, and I go, and he comes. What is this spirit doing now that he has come? Well, he does many things. Titus 3 and John 6, they tell us that the spirit gives life to spiritually dead people. 1 Peter 1 tells us that the spirit transforms Christians become more and more increasingly like Jesus. Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit helps us to pray. Romans 15 tells us that he empowers us to experience joy and hope and peace. Acts 1 tells us that the Spirit empowers us 
to do everything that God calls us to do. That's just the tip of the iceberg. The Spirit does so much more. There is nothing that God is doing in this world that we cannot attribute to the Spirit. There is nothing that God is doing in you that we cannot say, that's the Spirit. But Jesus tells us, he highlights here, there's two powerful ways that the Spirit works. Two ways. One, he convicts the world. Two, he teaches the church. Convicts the world, teaches the church. That's what's in this section of John 16. Last week, we saw that Jesus, he speaks about all of humanity in terms of two categories. Splits it and says, you're in one of these two categories. Either you are my friends, part of my church, or you are the world. It's a simple binary distinction that he makes. Our culture is increasingly uncomfortable with binary distinctions. There are many binary distinctions all through the scripture. Distinguishes God does between male and female, between creator and creation, between those who are spiritually dead and those who are spiritually alive. In this case, he's distinguishing between the church, his people, across the planet and throughout history, and the world. And what we see here is that the spirit functions in this particular way towards the world and in a particular way towards the church. He convicts the world, he teaches the church. So we're going to look at each of these and we're going to see why all of this is so advantageous to us as Christ's people. So, first of all, the Spirit convicts the world. Look at verse 8. He says, Jesus says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and he will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Christ calls the Spirit the Helper. Remember, it's got many names. The Helper is what he calls them, just like he called them in chapter 14. That word that's translated Helper, it's a, it's a tough word, actually, but to translate it to English. The Greek word is paraclete. Maybe you've heard this before. It could be translated Helper, as it is here. Some English Bibles translate it as Comforter. Some Bibles say Paraclete means advocate. They're all true. In fact, we saw this a couple weeks ago. That the Spirit is your advocate. Your advocate is your defender. In court, this courtroom language. He's a defense attorney for anyone who has believed in Christ. He speaks on your behalf. Defends you. He advocates for you before God. And he also convinces you, assures you, as your defense attorney, that you have been forgiven, that you have been accepted, that you have even been adopted by God. The helper, your advocate, wants you to know, keeps reminding you, 
that through faith in Christ, you've been accepted, forgiven, cleared of all guilt. But here, Jesus says that the helper is not only your advocate, he's also a prosecutor. He's a defender and a prosecutor. If you have not believed in Jesus, the Spirit's job is to convince you that you're guilty. Because without him convincing you, you won't believe that you are. His job is to convince you, to confront you with the uncomfortable reality of your guilt before God. Like a prosecutor, he exposes your crimes, lays them out. Because you might not even be aware of your crimes. Or you might think that they're so minor that don't even deserve to be considered. But the prosecutor shows you otherwise. The Spirit opens up eyes to see guilt. And this should be no surprise because Jesus was doing this very same thing already before the Spirit came. John 7, 7, Jesus says this, The world hates me because I testify about it that his works are evil. He was hated because no one likes to be exposed. And, and like Jesus, the Spirit's goal is to expose sin. But the reason he does it is to bring us to a point where we'll finally confess our guilt where we'll finally own up to it, come clean, and trust in Christ for full forgiveness. Sometimes we, um, we like exposing other people's sins because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Maybe we expose someone's sin and shame them for it. That's the core tenet of what's been called cancel culture more recently. You get caught doing, saying, or thinking something unacceptable, we will drag you. And if possible, we will ruin you. That's not what the Spirit's about. Not Him. And that's not what Jesus was about. The Spirit convicts of sin in order to rescue from sin's destructive power. He's the defender and the prosecutor. So, so, once you have believed in Christ, oh, he defends you. But to get you to Christ, he convicts you. But Jesus says, the Spirit also convicts the world concerning righteousness. He says it in verse 8 and verse 10. What does that mean? It's really along the same lines. The Spirit exposes the fact that we are not as righteous as we think we are. Most of us think, probably, that we're pretty okay people, relatively speaking. My son and I were watching a World War II documentary last night, and I think both of us would probably say that we're not as bad as Hitler or Mussolini. It's a pretty comfortable comparison to me, frankly. But, but should that really make us feel like we're good? Like we're righteous? Look, the only way that we can think that we are fundamentally good is if we lower the standard of what good is. And we're good at doing that. We're good at 
thinking we're good. In Mark 10, Jesus interacts with a, a wealthy young man who, who has a pretty high view of himself. And what that young man fails to see is that when God says good, he means blameless. He means sinless. And that's why Psalm 14 says, there is none who does good. No one. Now, we use the word good in different ways, and that's okay. Like, you might say, hey, he's a good guy. Or, she's, she's, she's a great woman. That's fine. We're using it in a different way, right? We don't need to say, no, he's not a good guy. He's an awful sinner. She's not great. No, she's a wicked rebel against God. We don't need to say those things. We say good and great, and we know what we mean. But when God says good, he's talking about something else altogether, and we need to realize that. Jesus shows that young man that his righteousness falls short. And again, Jesus' goal is not to shame him. The, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus loved that young man. Mark says he wanted that young man to own up to his unrighteousness and then follow him. The only true good, righteous one. Isaiah 64, verse 6, God says, we are unclean things. And our so-called righteousness is like filthy rags. Those words make me uncomfortable even reading them. When I was younger, I could read them and just say, oh, we're like filthy rags. But then someone explained to me what it meant. And then I looked up and I found out they were right. Filthy rags here, it's a, it's, a, it's a reference to menstrual rags. We think we're okay when we're comparing ourselves to the wrong people. When we compare ourselves to the perfect, righteous standard, Christ, we're not so good anymore. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit helps us to see Christ for who He is and to see ourselves for who we are in comparison to Him. Imagine you were playing uh, pickup basketball with your friends. And you might not be the best player on the court, but you're holding your own. In fact, your friends might say you're pretty good. Now, if you don't like basketball, you can, you can replace it with any other sport or activity that you enjoy. But as you're playing pickup ball with your friends and you're holding your own, you're not embarrassing yourself out there, a car pulls up. Steph Curry gets out of that car. 6'3", handsome young man, athletic build, three-time NBA champ, for those, of you who don't, for those of you who don't know who Steph Curry is, two-time NBA MVP, He's the record holder for the most three-point shots made in a single game. Like I said, he's 6'3". He looks pretty big to you when you, you watch basketball on TV and you say, when I see this guy on the court, he looks pretty small compared to a lot of those other players. He looks kind of frail, actually, out there. This is a big dude. And then he gets out on the court with you and asks if he can play. You say, all right, come on, let's play. Turns out he's a lot faster than you thought he was. 
He's a three-point specialist, but he decides that day he doesn't need to shoot three-pointers against you and your friends. All he's going to do is drive past you and dunk, and dunk, and dunk, and dunk. And, and, and as you watch him dunk one more time, you think, man, I felt pretty good until this guy showed up. I'm not even worthy to be on the same court as him. You see, by God's standard, Jesus Christ, we're not righteous enough. And the Spirit shows us this. And it's a twofold problem. We don't see how unrighteous we are until we get up close to Jesus. And we don't even realize how righteous Jesus is until we get up close to him. You see, some of us, maybe we've heard about Jesus. You've heard about him. You've seen artwork trying to depict him. You've read some Bible stories. Maybe you've been in Sunday school class. You've heard people tell you about how good Jesus is. But you don't realize how good he is because you haven't gotten up close enough to him. And the Spirit hasn't opened up your eyes to see him for who he really is. It's like looking at Steph Curry on TV. Yeah, I can do that. No, you can't. You get up close and your eyes are open to see the reality of the glory of Jesus' righteousness. And you have to say, I'm undone. And the answer is not do better. Be more like Jesus. No. When, when Steph Curry walks off that court and you go home, you don't say, man, if I work on my jump shot, I can beat this dude. If I practice my defense and get in better shape, start eating better, I'll bet you I can beat this dude. No, you go home and you say, there's no way I'm going to reach this man's level. When our unrighteousness before Christ is revealed, the answer is not do better and be more like him. The answer is you need a righteousness outsiders. You need his righteousness. And that's the only way any of us is going to measure up. The old theologians used to say, you need an alien of righteousness. That means a righteousness that's foreign to you and comes in and becomes yours. Jesus says that the helper convicts the world regarding sin, regarding righteousness, and then he also says the helper convicts the world concerning judgment. Does anyone really still believe in judgment in 2020? Believe in the idea that we're all going to stand before God and that the books are going to be opened and that all humanity is going to be held accountable and that God will judge impartially with perfect justice. There will be a just final reckoning. Jesus calls that a certainty. In fact, what did he say back in John 3, 18? Jesus said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's as if the judgment's already happened because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And anyone who has not believed in Jesus already stands condemned. Now that, that verdict can be reversed. Praise God, it can be reversed by faith in Jesus. Jesus says, until you believe in him, it's, you're condemned to separation from God, condemned to separation from everything good, condemned to hell. 
The Spirit comes and He convinces people, like you and me, that judgment is real. And that the only way to escape it is if someone else is judged in your place. Someone righteous. So that your guilt is credited to him and his righteousness is credited to you. And the only one who can do that is the Son of God himself. So this is what the Spirit does in the first place. He convicts the world of sin. And how does he do all this? This is something I think it's easy to miss. I think I read this passage for a long time and somehow completely missed it. The Spirit does all this convicting through the church, through us. We, we might think that the Holy Spirit comes and does all this and we sit back and we watch. But that's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? He says, the helper will come to you. I will send him to you, apostles, and by extension, church. He doesn't say, I'm going to send the Spirit to the world to go convict the world. He says, I'm going to send the Spirit to you to convict the world. So how is the Spirit going to work in the world? It's through you. He can work without you, too. Without me. And he does. But that's not the point here. That's not what Jesus is talking about. So there's an urgency here that Christ is driving us towards. He's saying, look, the world does not believe. So many don't believe. And I'm going to the Father soon. Judgment has already begun. The devil, who he calls the, the ruler of this world, he's already being judged. People need to see their own sin, the righteousness of Jesus, and believe. And that requires God's people, filled and empowered by the Spirit, to be used by the Spirit, to communicate the words of the Spirit. Last week, Jesus was telling us earlier in this section that the church will face hatred. And we said that applied particularly to the apostles, but it also applies to the church worldwide and throughout history. Communicating these convicting words can get you in trouble. But the kind of trouble that, as I said last week, the civil rights icon John Lewis called good trouble. It'll get you hated, but, it, but also, you know what these words are meant to do? They give us encouragement in evangelism. They give us encouragement to actually communicate God's words because the spirit is at work convicting. If he was not worth doing that, none of us would even be here. None of us would be followers of Jesus. He's good. The, Jesus, the Spirit is good at doing that convicting work. He's been doing it for a long time. And the gospel over the past 2,000 years has lit up the planet. And Jesus says this is all to our advantage because we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of it. There's another encouraging word here, too. It means that if the Spirit's job is to convict, then we don't need to convict. 
We don't need to do the convicting work. All we have to do is testify to who Christ is and speak the words the Spirit gives us. That's it. The fact is, we can get frustrated trying to get people to see their own sin. I mean, it's hard enough for me to get myself to see my own failings. How am I going to get someone else to do it? Sometimes you just want someone to just own up to it. Just admit what you did was wrong. Just admit it. Why will you keep defending yourself? Why can't you just say, yeah, I screwed up. Yeah, I sinned. And you, and you want to get that person to admit it so that they can then find forgiveness before God. You're putting pressure on yourself to, to, to be the Holy Spirit. Can't do it. It's not our job. Especially when it's someone you love. There's so much pressure to, to get them to see reality of their own unrighteousness and the need of Christ. So you might warn, you encourage, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a, a child of yours that's, that's, that's walking down a path that's destructive and dangerous and you're trying to rescue them from it. Maybe it's someone that, that you have loved and known for a long time and you're trying to help them and you can't get them convinced of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so what do you do? You warn and you encourage. You speak God's words to them and that's all good. But then if it doesn't work, what do you start doing? If you're like me, maybe you start finding words to guilt, to manipulate, to scare, to pressure. Oh, we're not the Holy Spirit. You are not the prosecutor. That's not your job. You're more like the witness who testifies to the truth of what God's word says, testifies to who Jesus is. The spirit does the convicting, but he works through us to do it. And secondly, and more quickly, the spirit teaches the church, teaches the church. Look at verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that is the Father's is mine. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Primarily, these words apply to those 11 apostles in the room on that night. Remember, we saw this last week, where sometimes we're too quick to jump to, what do these words mean for me? Well, we have to realize, first of all, he was talking to those apostles. They meant something very specific to them. Those were the apostles through whom the Spirit would write this New Testament. The Spirit would guide them into truth, inspire them and empower them to write the words of Scripture. Just as the Spirit had worked through the prophets to write the entirety of the Old Testament. It's interesting to me what, what Jesus says here in verse 13. He says, the Spirit will not speak on his own authority. He's saying the Spirit is not just independent. He's not going rogue. He will speak whatever he hears. And in verse 15, Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what the Father has is mine, and the Spirit will take what is mine and give it to you. What's going on there? 
This isn't really even supposed to highlight hierarchy as much as it's supposed to highlight unity. The Spirit never speaks on his own authority, which means he never goes off and does his own thing and says his own thing. Everything he says is the Word of God, the triune God. That means that these words here in the Bible, they're the Spirit's words. They are Jesus' words. They are God's words delivered to us through the prophets and through the apostles. 1 Thessalonians 2 says, 2.13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This Bible, this scripture, it's the final authority in all things in the church. Sometimes your Bible's mine doesn't, but I have other copies of the Bible that have Jesus' words in red. Any of you have Bibles where his words are in red? It's convenient, it's cool to be able to look in there and say, oh, those are Jesus' words. The downside of that is it can make us think that somehow those words take priority or preeminence over the other words in the Bible. You see, we can pick and choose between parts of the Bible and say, well, this, and we do it in different ways. Like, this is what Jesus said versus this is what the Apostle Paul said. So, what the Apostle Paul said doesn't really matter as much as what Jesus said. And Jesus would take issue with that. He says anything that the Spirit gives you, that gave these apostles to write, any words that the Spirit gave them to write were words that came from me and came from the Father. All. Don't pick and choose. We also look through the scriptures sometimes and we say, oh, this, this really just applied for then, this applies for now. Right? There are certain things in the New Testament that, that don't really go well with our culture. So we say, well, what, what, what the Bible says there about sexuality, we really can't take that as being for now. Or what the Bible says on the other one, what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. No, that's not really for now. Yeah, Paul talks about it in three whole chapters of, of 1 Corinthians, but that's really not for now. He was really just talking to those people back then. I think it's a convenient way to ignore parts of the scripture that maybe we don't know what to do with. No. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit. He's given us His Word, and we need all of it. The scripture provides us with everything we need to know about how to respond when we see our own unrighteousness, sin, looming judgment. It tells us everything we need to know about how to find safety, acceptance in Jesus. So these words, they applied, like I said, to the apostles. They applied to us as a church too. Because the Spirit does, in another way, still disclose truth to us, doesn't he? He leads us into truth. We just sang about it a moment ago. When we read the scriptures, the, the Spirit opens up our eyes and our hearts to make sense of it and to believe it and to actually want to believe it. I believe the Spirit still discloses truth to us. The Apostle Paul, again, I mentioned this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul speaks of things like words of knowledge and words of wisdom and prophecy. 
Ways in which the Spirit discloses truth that's always, always consistent with Scripture and never, ever, ever usurps the authority of Scripture, but is good and is to be welcomed. Same Spirit who said, Let there be light. When we had light, is the same spirit who comes to us and illumines our minds to believe God's word. The same spirit who created life with the word comes to us and, and brings life to, to our dead hearts so that we can believe what he says to us. And all of this, all of this glorifies Jesus. That's what he says in verse 14. The Spirit loves to expose the glory of Jesus to us and to the world. The Helper loves to help us know and love Jesus. And, and he's a helper, not in a weak sense. He doesn't give us a hand. He's a helper in the biblical sense. He makes possible what was once impossible. Without him, we can't know or love Jesus the way we desperately need to. Without him, we can't experience intimacy with Jesus. We can't even want that without the Spirit empowering us to want him. The Spirit makes it all possible. So, why is it better to have the Spirit inside us than to have Jesus beside us? I hope I gave you a few good reasons along the way. For one, Jesus left to die for us, to rise again, to sit on his throne, and to one day return, rule. And none of that happens if he first doesn't leave and the Spirit doesn't come. Spirit is in us. The Spirit in us means, this is another reason it's advantageous. We get to glorify Jesus by being a part of his unstoppable mission to rescue people into his kingdom. And the Spirit in us means that we get to experience spiritual intimacy with Jesus now. Promise of his embodied presence one day, forever. Praise be to God. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come to you in the name of your Son and in the power of your Spirit. And we thank you, thank you, thank you for him, for the helper, who even now is in us, empowering us to live for you and to love you. Lord, we want more of him. We want, we want to experience more of his power at work in us so that we can see you more clearly, Lord, so we will love you, Jesus, more fervently, so that we will hate our sin more, so that we will know 
and be comforted more and more by the fact that we are yours. So we can live in the joy of that. Fill us with your spirit. We ask that you would use us as you fill us to help Help the people we love, the people that you have placed in our lives, come to see the glory of Christ too. In his name we ask.